Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. In this episode, I'm going to walk you through some of the major changes you'll notice at Grace's Restoration Service this Sunday, July 4th. Then I'll talk with Cameron about a very moving essay by the novelist Paul Kingsnorth about his rather unlikely conversion to Christianity and why the gospel can be so hard to grasp even for people who think they know what Christianity is all about. This episode of The Commentary is being released on July the 2nd, 2021. Two days from now, on July the 4th, Independence Day, Grace is going to be holding a special service to mark a milestone in our recent history. We're calling this a restoration service. I'd like to take a few moments and talk about what we mean by that word restoration and what the practical changes are that you should expect when you join us for worship on the 4th and thereafter. Let's start with the practical stuff. How are things changing beginning this Sunday? The main thing that you're going to notice when you enter the sanctuary is that there are a lot more chairs in it than there have been since March 2020. We are restoring the floor plan layout of our sanctuary to the way that it used to be. And what that means is, instead of having that large center aisle and clusters of seats with a lot of distance between them, we will have no center aisle. Instead, we'll have long rows and aisles on either side of the sanctuary, on the left hand and on the right hand. And as you move towards the back of the sanctuary, the length of those rows will increase. This allows us to accommodate a lot more people comfortably than we have been able to do during the course of the pandemic. In addition, our seats are not going to be as spread out as they have been. We've had pretty generous spacing between those clusters of seats in order to facilitate social distancing. But now we'll have more regular spacing between each row. It's still generous spacing to allow you to move back and forth easily, even when there are people already seated in the row. But you'll notice that it's a little bit closer together than it was before. When you enter the sanctuary, I think you'll notice that the alignment of things in the room has also changed as well. During the pandemic, we moved things up on stage so that we could have kind of discrete zones for musicians and for me when I'm preaching. And now we've realigned things a little bit, so there's a little more balance and symmetry to the front of the sanctuary as you're looking forward. Another great change that you'll notice when you enter Grace this Sunday is that hospitality is back up to speed. That means before our services or after, you'll be able to grab a good cup of coffee and fortify yourself for some fellowship and some time in worship. Another big change, for me perhaps the most significant one, is that the way that we administer the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, communion, is going back to normal. 
we will no longer be using the pre-packaged elements that we have been using for a year now. Instead, you will come forward to the table and receive the bread and the cup. Now, for those of you who've never participated in communion at grace this way, let me explain how this works. When the time comes, your row will file out to the left and come forward down the aisle. At the front of the sanctuary, we'll have an elder stationed who will have the bread. And you will take a piece of bread, and that elder will say to you, the body of Christ broken for you, and you will respond, Amen. And then you eat the bread. And then you advance to the second elder who has the cup. You will take your cup. You have an option of wine or juice. If you want to choose wine, you take the tented glass, the pink glass. If you want juice, you take the clear glass. And then I will say to you, or whichever elder it happens to be from Sunday to Sunday, the blood of Christ shed for you, and you respond, Amen, and drink the cup. And then you file back down the aisle on the right-hand side. You can put your cup in the basket that's provided, and then you walk down the aisle on the right side of the sanctuary and return to your row. The symbolism of communion administered this way is quite beautiful. Just as Christ calls us out of the world to follow him, believers in the sanctuary are called forward to commune with him at the table. We have a table up front where the elements are located, and you consume those elements near that table. We don't sit down at a chair as if we're at the dinner table, but the symbolism is we're approaching the table together. This is why each of us, as we eat the bread and take the cup, do so near the table to maintain this idea that this is a table fellowship where we are breaking bread and sharing the cup with our Lord Jesus and with one another. Now, the reason we're calling this our restoration service is that worship for grace is being restored to the way that we believe it ought to be. During the course of the pandemic, we have all endured some hard things, and we've endured them together. And one of the things that's been particularly tough for us as a church has been conducting our communion experience in this unusual way, accommodated to the needs of the pandemic. Grace has always been a church with a huge emphasis on the incarnational aspects of Christian worship. It's important for us to be able to gather together in person, physically, to worship. It's important for us to participate physically in the concrete signs and seals of God's covenant of grace so that we have a sense not only of the spiritual reality of the gospel, but also of its physical, real-world implications. It's been hard to see the symbolic aspects of our worship modified over this time, and so we are rejoicing to be able to do things in a way more in line with the theology that drives everything that we do. Of course, we acknowledge that 
Life won't go entirely back to normal on July the 4th. The pandemic will still continue to have various effects, and we will continue to pray that the Lord makes things better and better, not only here, but also around the world. We are continuing to lift up our fellow human beings, our brothers and sisters, in prayer, and hoping that God will continue to do a larger work of restoration. Our little taste this Sunday gives us hope in the future restoration of all things. The Irish novelist Paul Kingsnorth wrote an essay in First Things a few weeks ago that I've been forcing on people left and right because it's such an amazing, amazing document. It's essentially the story of his conversion to Christianity, which happened rather recently. Uh, He writes about being a a skeptic towards Christianity, a a critic towards Christianity, uh, being very involved in uh, other kinds of spirituality, a Wiccan priest, and all sorts of things. And so his conversion, I think, would have seemed a very unlikely one. But as he writes about it, it's, it's just breathtaking. But there's one thing in particular that I've found myself talking about with several people who've also read this, and it it has to do with the way he describes like coming to a late-in-life realization about what Christianity is, or to put it another way, the story that Christianity is telling. In the essay, he writes about uh, realizing that Christianity is the story of man's rebellion against God and how when he first came across that way of talking about Christianity, it struck him as really fresh and new, something he'd not heard before. That's my jumping off point because it reminds me of a lot of really intelligent, well-educated people who I have known or read over the years, oftentimes very well-informed about uh, all things religious, oftentimes strident critics of Christianity who, when you speak to them, are also not always well-informed about like what the essence of Christianity actually is mm. and think they know what Christianity teaches and are actually like fundamentally off in their understanding of the story. So I thought that would be an interesting thing to unpack just a little bit. You know, how can it be that people who, who seem to know Christianity, at least in the broad strokes, and to have dismissed it, can suddenly have this realization that uh, this thing I thought I knew, I didn't know, and now I see it with new eyes. It's a seriously good question, because I agree with you. I I see it, and I don't think it's actually my own first inclination to think about Christianity that way all the time, even though I'm very familiar with that way of thinking. So there's something in us that pushes, at the, pushes us in different directions, and it could be just a simple kind of pride that we don't we don't often like to think of humans and as rebels in that kind of a way you know we like to pride ourselves and think that we're a we're a good race or we're you know we're growing and we're 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 finding progress i'm i'm interested in the question of why you think it's necessary and maybe you could you could 
shed some light from the essay. Why is it necessary to see Christianity as that story of man's rebellion? I don't know if it's necessary because I think that, you know, for different people, it may be different aspects of the Christian story that come into focus. Um, And yet, I do think that particular area is one that is really helpful. So I had a similar experience with that concept when years ago I was asked to do what was probably my first time ever like talking to a group of young people. Uh, This is before I did Worldview Academy. Uh, I hadn't written anything. I was invited by a youth pastor friend of mine to talk to some kids about the gospel. And I ended up going to 2 Corinthians and using Paul's description of the gospel as a ministry of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And when you go back and you look at that passage and you think about the implications of it, you know, the idea of, of us as ambassadors from God who are reconciling people to him, that presupposes an alienation. But it presupposes that there is a rebellion against God. Mm-hmm. And, and that rebellion, it has implications that run deeper than, say, you know, subjects rebelling against a king in a sort of anthropomorphic way. Because if, if what we're saying is that creatures rebel against their creator, then we're saying that in, in reality we have this, this alienation that runs through our being, mm-hmm. you know, that we are at odds with our world, that we're not uh, comfortable, you know, in our own skin, so to speak, but there's a, an inner turmoil where we don't seem to know what we are and what we're for. We don't seem to understand what the world is for and how to use it. And this feels like the source of many of our woes. So mm-hmm. in uh, King's, King, King's North's example, he's been heavily into environmentalism and, I think, you know, that like many other strains of thought, that that probably <laughs> lends itself to a, a pretty uh, Calvinist view of human nature in the mm-hmm. sense that you are constantly confronting uh, man's depravity and the ruthlessness with which he can destroy the natural world in this case. And the gospel when you start peeling back the layers, ends up having this extraordinary explanatory power where it seems to be giving you a handle on the world that you live in and the struggles that you face that is more profound than the ideologies that oftentimes we embrace in the you know, mistaken belief that they're somehow superior or more advanced or represent greater progress over mm-hmm. Christianity than they really do. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It makes me wonder too if if part of what's going on here is that a, that a lot of modern people they see the issue. The main issue is like figuring out whether or not God exists. And so we have these different strands of, of atheism now or agnosticism. And I, I just sense a lot of anxiety amongst, amongst modern people to, to figure that out. It's like God, if there's a God, he's out there and he's kind of just waiting for me to, 
to figure it out and to and to believe or to have some experience which validates belief. But what that misses is that reality you were just talking about, that, that there's something actually deeply wrong with us. It's not just that God's waiting, kind of, but that we have turned our backs on him. And and we can't just go back on our own either, you know. So I think that is a it's a profoundly different way to to look at look at faith. And it also is a profoundly different setup for the gospel because now you have something that's actually grace. Now and Jesus can actually bring us back and reconciliation can happen. But if, if there's no rebellion, then there's no reconciliation. Right. I think one of the things it made uh, the Apostle Paul's apologetic so powerful is the way that he built on things that people already understood. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about his appeal at Mars Hill and, you know, he acknowledges the religiosity of the people and he's here to declare to them the the God they have worshipped in ignorance, the unknown God. He's doing that rhetorically. You know, he's not just patting them on the back for being good idolaters and happening <laughs> to, to get it right finally. But, but he is acknowledging that there's an instinct that they have or a knowledge of the world that they have and the gospel that he's presenting is going to be the key that fits that lock, right? So you may not know the solution of Jesus, but you do know the problem. You just don't know how to name it necessarily. And I think that's what comes through in this essay and what comes through in stories like this to me is that um, Christianity oftentimes is, is like the, the hidden in plain sight secret we assume that it does not have the power to explain the world that we live in and that, that we need some new way of doing that, whether it's the existential quest that you're describing for, for meaning, you know, what is my purpose, or more of an ethical quest, you know, what is, what is just and, and, and who is just. But all of these questions are addressed and addressed richly and in, in complex ways within Christianity. And I think it can be surprising to people to discover that these aren't new questions, but also that there are real explanations to be found in the faith. So you already have an experience of the world and are seeking to essentially like, like quantify, like, like how do I interpret these things that I've experienced? What the gospel brings to that equation is an interpretation that makes sense of things. And I think that's the, I, we could say the frustration when you're having a conversation with someone who, who despite uh, often profound degrees of knowledge does not see this, but also it's, it's encouraging because when that discovery happens, the change can be dramatic and, and very quick. I mean, it's, it's remarkable to think that, uh, you know, a, a writer as accomplished as, as Kingsnorth is, having had a relatively recent conversion experience, is able to write about it with such profundity. Well, it's no surprise because... The, the conversion may be recent, but the journey itself is, is not. And 
that's true for a lot of people around us. Certainly a lot of people that, that I've known and cared about and prayed for over the years where uh, as far as they may seem from Christ, oftentimes you have this sense of a nearness that you don't perceive. You know, that he isn't as far from you as you imagine him to be. And, and part of it is I, what I think you're saying is that we all have a sense that the world is not quite right. And, and that sense or intuition is always going to be slightly different from age to age. And the example of environmentalism is fascinating, I think. But I suspect that there are other uniquely contemporary impulses or, or senses of the brokenness of the world that show themselves and people are trying to find a kind of reconciliation with themselves or with existence. And, and maybe the gospel comes in and speaks there. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting conversation for sure. It is. <laughs> I, I think, you know, there's a lot we could say about it, but I think the, the thing I would just end with is just this thought that uh, we're often tempted to imagine that uh, the lines are drawn and the sides have been chosen and that, you know, the the most vocal critics of Christianity that you know will always be that way and are, are beyond reaching. And and it's easy sometimes to give up hope on people. And so I just think, you know, a little data point like this helps me not to slide into that and helps me to maintain hope in the power of the gospel and also in in the peculiar and often convoluted journeys that uh, we take in order to find the cross. That's all the time we have for now. Thank you, Cameron, and thanks to you, our listeners. We appreciate you spending this time with us, and we hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.